thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living word. We come today corporately in your presence, worshiping you, Lord, trusting in you. Lord, so often we trust in our own abilities. We trust in our own way of thinking and our own way of doing things. But Jesus, you live the life of perfect obedience. And your obedience and your death on the cross is applied to us. And so, Lord God, as we are here corporately together to worship you, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as your word is proclaimed in our hearing. Not that we would just be hearers, but Lord, we would also be doers of your word. Give us a heart of obedience that you may be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I'm excited today uh, to introduce to you our guest preacher, as I have done each week. And all of the weeks that we've had, um, they've done wonderful jobs of pointing us to Jesus. And today is no different. Today, I want to introduce my friend, uh, Elliot Grudem, who's going to bring the word today. Now, I, 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 say, I said this with Brian on last week, but it's also true this week. Reconciliation exists in large part for what Elliot Grudem has invested in me and his, 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 uh, his organization, Leaders Collective, imparting into us, giving us tools, giving us the things that we need in order to take the next step to be faithful. Because I often talk about each church, our church, and any church that exists to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ is an outpost of resistance to the kingdom of darkness. And again, to be able to be trained and poured into by Elliot has meant the world to me, and it continues to mean everything to me as we continue to interact. So Elliot, I invite you to come up, brother, and open the book so that we can hear. Let's welcome Elliot, you guys. Thanks, Russell. It is, uh, man, it's good to be with you all. It, um, I've been kind of lurking in the back since uh, Reconciliation's existence. I uh, was at the first services in the field and uh, get to sneak over here a couple afternoons. Um, uh, and it has been uh, fantastic. It's been, uh, it's been good for me, it's been good for my family, it's been good for my soul. Um, and I don't know about you, but I could have sang that 23rd Psalm song maybe all evening and just skip the sermon and we might actually be better off. Anyway, um, so uh, for those of you that are in on the details, Jeff Bradford, who's the pastor at Christ the King, was supposed to be here uh, this Sunday uh, to preach. Um, his brother-in-law, his wife's brother, died in a motorcycle accident uh, earlier this week, and so they've been in Tennessee with the family and for the funeral, uh, and so um, I'm just honored to be able to come and uh, and share God's word with you. Jeff texted me today. He said he's he said three things. He said um, you know I'm, you know let him know I'm sorry I can't be there. Really look forward to being there sometime and and getting with it. He said second I listened to Dr. Loritz's sermon from last week and I'm glad that you're following him, not me. <laughs> and I couldn't agree. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, um, uh, the, the text that's in your bulletin is Psalm 46. That's the text I told Russ I would be preaching. Uh, I'm not. I changed my mind uh, a little bit later in the week. Uh, I want to look at Acts 16. And so if you have a uh, phone on your app or Bible, turn to Acts 16. Because I, I thought, as more I thought about it, I thought, more than anything, I want to bring a word of encouragement to you as a church. And uh, so as you're turning to Acts 16, especially as the church plant, I want to tell you a story about a church plant in Acts 16 and, uh, and maybe bring some encouragement to you as well. Um, I'll say a few words as you're getting there. About eight months ago, a kitchen accident uh, led to a trip to my doctor to stitch up my hand. And I've known my doctor for a while. He knows what I do. His pastor is actually a church planner that I've worked with through Leaders Collective. And uh, I don't know, visits to my doctor often end up with conversations about churches and church planting who actually enjoy more than talking about my health. So anyway, he's stitching up my hand, and, uh, you know, he said, so this is, you know, middle of 2020, middle of last year, and he said, I imagine this pandemic has put your church planting activity on hold. Uh, now, I, I spend most of my time helping pastors and church planters through, as Russell said, an organization called Leaders Collective. And if you asked me back in, in mid-March, you know, when they canceled the tournament, and it's like, oh my goodness, this thing's serious, um, I would have said a similar thing. I said, much of our church planting work is going to be on hold for a while. But he and I were both wrong. In the last 18 months, Leaders Collective has worked closely with 15 church planters like Russell, who all started churches like Reconciliation, in the midst of the mess that's been the last year and a half. Quietly heroic, courageously faithful, and as a result, they're, they're getting the best stories. I think about my friend Brandon Woodard, who you heard preach here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as you know, Brandon is planting in a severely under-resourced area of Cincinnati, and when the pandemic hit, his church actually got to give leadership to and raised money for a meal program in their community that served, this is a tiny little church plant, over 300 families each day. Uh, they had a college student attend their online service so she could write a paper for a sociology class on how religious communities deal with tragedy. She had no interest in Jesus or the church. And then she listened to them pray their prayers of lament. And last time I checked, she's still attending. For all of 2020, Brandon worked three other jobs in addition to planting his church so he could plant a church in this under-resourced community. He longed to give more time to the church. He asked God to make a way, and God did. He quit his other jobs in faith. He made a simple ask of a few other churches, and in two weeks... The churches he asked and churches that he didn't ask gave enough to cover a full year's budget. Quietly heroic, quietly heroic, courageously faithful, and easily the best stories. When I was in high school, my parents started a church, and since then, all of my church experience has either been in church plants or in churches that plant churches. Sixteen years ago, my family moved to Raleigh to replant Christ the King, a church that planted this church. And since then, most of my vocational work has focused on church planting. And, and one of the best parts of my job is that I get to hear a lot of stories. And I get to hear a lot of church planter stories. And I'm convinced 
that church planters get the best stories. And again, I want to look at one of those stories today, Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 34. It's a long passage. Let me just read the story. It's a pretty engaging story. So in setting sail from Troas, we made, that's Paul and his companions, made a direct voyage to Samothrace and then following, uh, then the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. We supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One, of the, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the town of Thyria. Thy, nope. Thy, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl at a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain from fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. When our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful things in your word. And we ask you to be present by your spirit now to help us understand these things that you would, by your presence, do the change in our hearts that you desire, that we leave here a people deeper in love with you and deeper in love with one another. It's in your name, Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen. So just before Jesus left earth and returned to heaven, 
he commissioned his disciples uh, to continue his mission on earth. The, the story is recorded in Matthew 28. It's a well-known passage that's often called the, the Great Commission. In it, Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So like Jesus' disciples, we want to do what Jesus tells us to do. And, and, and though Jesus didn't say, go plant churches, what we see in the book of Acts is that his disciples fulfilled his commission by planting churches. So we're going to continue to do church like, like they did, and that means we plant churches. It's the reason Christ the King plants churches. It's the reason I do what I do. It's the reason the McCutcheon family moved from Memphis to Nightdale. It's the reason your staff is raising support uh, for their salaries to work here. It's the reason you all are showing up early and staying late to do the, to do the hard work of, of ministry and giving generously of your money and your time and inviting your neighbors and praying that God makes this thing go. Because we want to follow Jesus' command to make disciples the same way his first disciples, also called the apostles, did. And if you know anything about the story in Acts, you know they started this church in Jerusalem, and it quickly grew and eventually spread throughout the regions. And, and one of the churches wound up in a, in a Greek city called Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, an area that's now part of western Turkey. And a, and a guy named Paul was at that church, and eventually the church decided they wanted to plant churches. And so they send out Paul and another member of their church called Barnabas, and they send them out on this church planting mission. And they, and they go all the way around, and they start planting these churches. And in Acts 16, we find them in the middle of this church planting vision. Paul and his fellow workers, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy... They're in Philippi. And they're there as part of this long church planting journey that's taken them through Western Asia that has gone well up to the point before they got to Philippi. We find them in Acts 16. The journey has stalled out. Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement that they couldn't resolve, and so they split up. And then Paul and his companions are trying to figure out where to go, and every time they try to go to a place, Holy Spirit's like, nope, can't go there. What about, nope, can't go there, can't go there. Then one night Paul has this vision, and it's a man asking him to come to Macedonia to help them. And believing the visions from God, Paul and his companions set sail three days and wind up in Philippi, a city in what we now call Greece. Paul and his crew arrive, and as is their pattern, they visit a Jewish worship service. Paul tells the story of Jesus, who died for the sins of his people, and at least one of the women believes in Jesus, gets baptized, and offers her house as the home base for this now newly formed church. And Paul and his companions continue this weekly pattern of going to worship services. And as they do, a possessed, fortune-telling slave girl follows them, shouting at them. And Paul, it's so fascinating, right? It's right there in the text, verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turns and casts the demon out. And the inference is that the once-possessed girl now joins their church. Her owners get angry, not because she's delivered, but because this trafficked woman isn't making them money anymore. No demon, no fortune. So they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace, which is both the center of commerce and judgment. Paul and Silas are accused. They're beaten. They're sent to jail, all without a trial. And they go into jail, and they start singing and praying, and God sends an earthquake. They're released from their stocks, the jail doors come open. 
the jailer, fearing that all the prisoners have escaped, decides to kill himself. But just before he does, Paul shouts, don't worry, no one's escaped. The jailer believes in Jesus, gets baptized, along with his family, and they join the church. Church planners get the best stories. And there are a number of things, actually, in this story that are, that are common to many church planters' stories. And I, and I want to highlight three as a way of encouraging you and giving you a picture of what you may find as you continue this journey and see God bless your work. Three things that are common to most church plants. Conversion, opposition, and supernatural victory. Conversion, opposition, supernatural victory. Church plants tend first conversion. Church plants tend to see people believe in Jesus for their salvation. That's what, again, I mean by conversion. And the reason they see more conversions is because they're often focused on those who don't yet know Jesus, or don't yet believe in Jesus as, as their Savior. They intentionally set the rhythms of their life around people that don't yet know Jesus, which, by the way, is just a side note, is key church plant survival. If you just wait hoping someone will find your website or see your pretty signs outside this church and think, wow, I'd like to come there, you probably won't see many conversions and eventually your church ain't going to make it. But instead, if you engage with your friends and neighbors and invite them to come and, and you find, find a way of kind of engaging with people that don't yet know Jesus and invite them to come to the church, you will see conversions and, and the church will do well. In, in the case of Paul and Silas, they didn't have anyone to start the church with when they, when they arrived in Philippi. So rather than hoping that somehow people might come to them, they went looking for people who might have an interest in Jesus, told them about Jesus, and watched God do his work. They found this woman named Lydia, seller of purple goods, a worshiper of God, verse 13. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, Lydia is an immigrant. Originally from a city, what we, might, what we now call Turkey. She, she deals in the finest, most expensive fabric available. What at that time was purple goods. We might have the equivalent today of some kind of really fancy, expensive, rare silk. She's a wealthy homeowner and either single or widowed. She's pious but has yet to trust in Jesus. Paul talks about Jesus. The Lord opens her heart and she believes in Jesus. And it almost seems to riff on St. Augustine. Her heart was restless till it found its rest in Jesus. Anyway, Jesus saves her, she's baptized, and her house becomes a meeting place for this fledgling church. And, you know, I read this story and I can't help think about a mutual friend of Russell and I, a church planter by the name of Kyle, who is in Dallas. Like most church planters, he intentionally reworked the rhythms of his life to make sure he had regular interaction with people that didn't yet believe in Jesus. So he and members of the new church started frequenting a local Thai restaurant, and they got to know the manager, Du, and they gave him a Thai Bible, and they threw a birthday party for him, and Kyle and Du found they shared a passion for FIFA, the soccer video game, and they became friends, often playing FIFA at Kyle's house, but their conversation never turned to spiritual things. Du took a trip home to Thailand, and in his words, for some weird reason, I grabbed the Bible. 
When he got back to Dallas, he asked Kyle if they could read the Bible together. So they did, and after the first time reading it, Deuce said, it was like my eyes had been blind, and all of a sudden I'm beginning to see. The next week he comes to Kyle's house. Kyle's setting up FIFA. Dew's resistant to play. Oblivious, Kyle keeps setting up the game. Dew finally interrupts him and says, look, can you just tell me how I can become a Christian? <laughs> they prayed. Dew was baptized the next Sunday and is an active member of the church. And I met him last time I was in Dallas when, of course, we went to dinner at the Thai restaurant. Quietly heroic, courageously faithful, the best stories. But as you listened, or as you heard, as you read Acts 16, Paul and his companions' work in Philippi doesn't end with Lydia or even the gathering at her house. And the reason is because their goal is not to find a weekly meeting place or, or have a Bible study. Their, their goal is to tell the good news about Jesus. They want to tell the story of the gospel and see the gospel advance in the lives of all people. So we see in verse 16, they don't just meet in Lydia's house, they keep going back to the place where they met Lydia, the, the place of prayer to engage with others that don't yet believe in Jesus. Again, they're intentionally setting the rhythm of their life to be around people like that. And as they're going, they're met by a girl, we might call her trafficked. Listen to how she's described in verse 16. As we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Her life is an absolute nightmare. Her owners care nothing for her other than the money she makes them by telling fortunes for her clients. She's trapped and doesn't have any hope of change. So she follows Paul and his companions, shouting some general truths about them, and eventually Paul becomes annoyed with, with her situation, with the commotion she's causing. We don't know the exact reason. But Paul turns around and casts out the evil spirit. And the inference is, again, that she believes in Jesus and joins the fledgling church. Having found a new family who loves her for who she is, not using her for what she can provide. But the account of the church plan in Philippi doesn't end there. So we'll see in a minute, the exorcism gets Paul and Silas thrown in prison. God intervenes, delivers them, and in the process, Paul prevents the jailer from taking his life. He asks Paul how Jesus can save him, and Paul tells him the jailer becomes a believer in Jesus, gets baptized, and becomes part of the fledgling church. Philippi is a Roman colony settled and ruled by former members of a Roman army. Though the jailer wasn't an original founder of the city, this probably happened about 80 years after the city was colonized, most likely he's a former military guy who took an early retirement in Philippi and was appointed to his position by other military veterans. So a church is planted in Philippi. And here's what we know about their core group. It, it's a diverse group. You have an insider, that's the jailer. You have an immigrant, that's Lydia. And you have an outsider, the slave girl. And Jesus saves them all. Well, what's Luke saying here? Well, he's saying that the gospel crosses ethnic, social, economic, and gender lines. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is good news for all type of people. But I actually think Luke's even saying something more. See, Luke, the author of Acts, is, well, it's like this. At the time of the writing of Acts, 
If you were a pious Jew, head of the household, you would begin each day thanking God that you weren't a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. Even that's turned upside down. Who are the converts here? A woman, a Gentile, a slave. They are the ones that start this church. Quietly heroic, courageously faithful, the best stories. I mean, the whole social order is being turned upside down. By tremendously unlikely people. But often, as is the case in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament and throughout the experience of the church planners I work with, you get the best stories, but they don't come without opposition. The gospel doesn't advance without opposition. I mean, sometimes you do everything right and everything goes right, and sometimes you do everything right and everything goes wrong. And sometimes it goes wrong because people are evil, and sometimes it goes wrong because we live in a world where everything doesn't always work the way it's supposed to work. About, oh, I don't know, 14 years ago, I was into, you know, a year or two into the Christ the King replant, and I asked a friend to come lead worship one Sunday, lead the music one Sunday. My friend and I showed up early at the building to meet the musicians and start the practice, and, and our building that we had at the time was in downtown Raleigh, this gorgeous old stone church. Well, gorgeous on the outside. It had years of deferred maintenance on the inside, and they had gutted the sanctuary to turn it into a, a cafeteria uh, for um, elderly people. It wasn't the nicest space, but it cost us 750 bucks a month, and that was all we could afford. We were thrilled. So the deferred maintenance wasn't the only problem. We also had a challenging landlord who cared little for the state of the building, wouldn't let us upfit it even when we asked to, and really didn't care about us. And it was obvious this Sunday. I open the door, the lights are off, the alarm's blaring. I, I call the landlord, wake her up, and she said, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Uh, the power went out at the building on Friday. We don't know how to fix it. It's not going to get fixed till Monday. Click. I got the alarm off by pulling a couple wires. I've watched a couple TV shows. Told the musicians to go up and start practice while I scramble for a solution. But I was discouraged seemed like another Sunday would be upended by events that were outside our control. We did right, and it went wrong because we live in a world that doesn't look like it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work like it's supposed to work. Uh, now, that was a minor inconvenience compared to what Paul and Silas faced. Look at the response to casting, out the de casting the demon out of the slave girl, verse 19. When our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, again, no care for her, just for the money, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The demons cast out, and the girl becomes of no value, useless to her owners. Angered at the loss of income, they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace, which is, again, not just the center of commerce, but also the, the center of law. 
Their accusations, though, show that greed isn't the only thing that they're mad about or isn't the only thing that's in their hearts. I mean, prejudice is there well, as well. Look at verse 20. Accusation number one, these men are Jews, playing to the anti-Semitism that's in the city. They're disturbing our city, playing to the Romanism that's present in the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, Romans, to accept or practice, playing to the fear of this strange cult. So, you've got the greed combined with racism, nationalism, and fear. And these all come together and converge in this accusation against them. And without a chance to defend themselves, Paul and Silas are attacked by the crowd, stripped of their clothing, and publicly beaten by the police. And following the betra- this brutality at the hands of the police, they're put in stocks and wrongfully imprisoned. And we know that the government and the police acted unjustly toward Paul because once he's released from prison, Paul calls them on it and forces them to apologize for the unlawful and sinful treatment they received and to do it publicly. He actually shames them publicly for the way they treated him. That's a story for another sermon. Anyway, Paul and Silas are in jail. They're in pain from the beating. The wounds are open and untreated. Their feet are in stocks so they can't get comfortable. And so they do the next obvious thing. They start to sing and pray loudly. Loud enough for all the prisoners to hear. Verse 26 describes what happens next. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The jailer freaks out. Paul calms him down. He believes in Jesus. He brings Paul and Silas to his house. He tends to their wounds. He gets baptized along with the rest of the house, and he feeds them a meal. And in verse 34, he rejoices along with his entire household. He rejoices along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Again, quietly heroic, courageously faithful, the absolute best stories. Now, now, I wasn't praying when the power went out at our building. I'm not sure that my initial response was necessarily God-honoring. But the the magicians did start practicing when they started singing, which is just praying to music, the first, well, one of the first songs they started practicing was an old hymn that starts like this. Come, Holy Ghost, Creator blessed, and in our hearts take up thy rest. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid. And the lights came on. And the power stayed on until the service was over. And then it went off. And it was fixed on Monday. The best stories. Really, the best stories. But, but to get those stories, you need to reorient yourselves a bit. I mean, see, Paul and Silas prayed to God instead of cursing their accusers because they knew that their accusers weren't the ultimate enemy. Satan was. As a side note, it doesn't mean you can't do anything about an unjust government. You can, like Paul did, publicly call the government, uh, this, and then their government sanctioned injustice and publicly demand that they make it right. But again, that's a sermon for another time. Paul 
cast the demon out of the slave girl because he didn't see her as the enemy, but instead as an image bearer of God whose story was yet to be fully told. Uh, Paul stopped the jailer from taking his own life because he wasn't Paul's enemy, but instead a fellow image bearer of God whose story wasn't yet fully told. My anger towards my landlord did nothing to get the power on, but singing in brain did. Church planting is a spiritual street fight. That means there are no rules. Satan and demons will throw everything they can at you, and they have one primary goal, to try and show that the work of Jesus is ineffective and powerless. Now look, they cannot succeed in that goal because the work of Jesus is powerful and effective, but they're going to do everything they can to try to make it seem like that is true. And what that means is stuff's going to go wrong, and it means you're going to suffer. And when we only try to fight against these spiritual powers with what we can muster, we at best will get a temporary victory. When we trust in the power of God and we fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, things like singing and prayer, the things that make our work effective, we get to see God work in some amazing ways, like the power coming on without any reason or explanation. And look, you, you may hear these stories. Acts 16. The church planters and some over-enthusiastic say, man, that's like New Testament church stuff. And I used to say similar things, but, but over time I've come to realize that that's a truncated view of God and his ability to work in the world. These stories, all of them, they're simply church stuff. It's the way God chooses to advance his gospel. Through the quietly, heroic, courageously faithful men and women, trusting God will do what he says he will do and then acting accordingly. And when we do that, we get to see spiritual power show up and bring about life-altering change. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, each story includes prayer to God before the conversion. Each story takes great care to make it clear that, that God acted, that he got behind his people's actions, and it changed everything. Uh, Fifteen churches planted in a global pandemic. My friend Brandon and his, and his salary, he prayed, asked, God provided. My friend Kyle and his friend do prayed, reordered their lives around people like do, and God acted. Lights coming on at a fledgling church. So a quick-to-anger pastor could have the service. Musicians went forward in faith, sang, and God acted. In each story, people asked God to do his work, and they stepped out in faith, and he did something. God acted, and it changed everything. It happened for my friend Canaan, who's also one of Russell's friends. You get to meet him in September. Anyway, Canaan's a, a church planter, an area of Fort Worth known to people that don't live in that community only for its crime and poverty. Canaan lives there and sees it as a place for God's glory to shine. Anyway, they're meeting in the elementary school prior to COVID. That kicks them out of the elementary school, so they pray for a new place to meet. 
They find a field next to a community center in the middle of the neighborhood that would both meet their needs and give them an opportunity to engage with the many residents that live and walk by the field, and they're thrilled. Initially, they're only able to get it for Saturday evenings, and after their first gathering, they realized that the noise of the service might bother some of the neighbors. So they went door to door around the field, handing out gift cards and letting their neighbors know what they were doing. Their assistant pastor knocks on a door, and as he introduces himself, the woman who answered the door starts crying. She says she knew they were at church. She wanted to come last week when they started for their first service out in the field, but she was afraid. See, field's affiliated, meaning a group in the neighborhood claims it as their territory. She just got out of prison, and her past made it maybe not the best thing for her to show up at that field made her attendance there somewhat complicated. But nevertheless, she accepts the invitation, comes the next week, Jesus saves her. She gets baptized. And she finds the very thing that she longed for coming out of jail, a new family. Quietly heroic, courageously faithful. And then God, in a sense, flexes with supernatural power and we get the best stories. But we often miss the best stories because we, and that includes me, expect too little and try to control too much. And so we miss the best stories, but it doesn't have to be that way. See, the story of the Philippian church doesn't end with Lydia the, Lydia the jailer and the former slave girl. No, that, that church actually brings the gospel to the palace of the Roman Empire. Well, Paul got there, but as he explains in his letter to the church, that we, the letter that we call Philippians, he and his church have this thing called a gospel partnership. They have a shared commitment to the same goal, to see the gospel advance throughout the world, and they both give everything that they have to see that happen. Paul travels, preaches, plants churches. Sometimes the, the church sends people with them. Sometimes they send financial support. Sometimes it's just their faithful commitment to their church and their fervent prayers for Paul. But no matter what they did, they did each did something, and together they get to share in the best stories of God's work. I mean, let me say that even clearer. When I say that church planters get the best stories, I mean that each one of you is involved in this gospel partnership. If you're part of this church, the best stories that reconciliation gets, they are your stories. They're not just Russell's stories. They're your stories. That's, that's you plural. Y'all get these stories. See, gospel partnership works like this. We each give what God has gifted us and then he does something spectacular with it. Let me say it again. It, it, it's just this amazing deal. Gospel partnership works like this. We give what God has gifted us, and he does something spectacular with it. So as we close, let me encourage you to find your place in this partnership. I mean, don't be like the guy that Wakianas dominate and thinks that he has something to do with the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship just because you watch the game on TV. Do something. Well, how? Well, you may notice this sermon was absent of 
stories about reconciliation, and that's not because you don't have great stories, but because I want to encourage you to find your place in this partnership. Watch those stories unfold, and remember and share and celebrate those stories together. Again, it's, it's not New Testament church stuff. It's simply church stuff, faithful men and women, praying and trusting God, stepping out in faith and doing what God asks and gifts them to do. This is how reconciliation gets planted. Here's the secret. Each one of you works as God has gifted you and the church needs you to advance the gospel throughout Nightdale and Southeast Raleigh. You don't just get to see the gospel go forward there, but you've got these partnerships at the church in Cincinnati and, and in Dallas and Fort Worth and, and the campus of NC Central and wherever else God allows this, this gospel partnership with fellow disciple-making missionaries in the U.S. and around the world, wherever He allows it to be. And it's not just those with superhuman strength and faith that plant churches. It's, again, the quietly heroic, the courageously faithful men and women taking Jesus at his word, trusting that he was, he was true and honest when he said that he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. You're empowered by the same spirit that empowered Paul, Silas and Brandon and Kyle and Canaan. You just do what God has gifted you to do. It's all y'all. You plant this church in the power of God's Spirit. So invite your friends and neighbors. Why would they not want to get in on this story? This is the best story there is. Reorient the rhythms of your life to intentionally engage with someone that doesn't yet believe in Jesus. I mean, how cool is that to see someone who doesn't believe in Jesus transformed by the gospel and then believe in Jesus and have their whole life turned upside down. I mean, how cool is that? And then work with Russell and other leaders in the church to find the places that your gifts and desires meet the needs of the church and this community. And collect the stories. Collect the stories where you see God doing something spectacular. Share those stories with one another. Celebrate them together for they really, really are the best stories. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us do just that. Take you at your word. Trust that you are true. Trust that you will do what you say you will do. Step out in faith. See you show up and celebrate the work that you're doing in and through us. Lord Jesus, give this church and these people many years of celebrating the good work that you're doing in and through them in Nightdale, Southeast Raleigh, to the ends of the earth. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.